Father, we thank you for this time together. Um, I, it, I'm impressed again uh, how limited I am in saying what I want to say and, and what I see in your word and what you've, you've revealed to us in your word about who you are and what you've done through Christ. And I, I just ask again that you would bless this class with your presence, with your Holy Spirit to give us um, clarity of thought and wisdom and discernment on knowing you and the one whom you've sent, Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would, uh, in revealing yourself, knit us together to be an expression um, as your body, a part of your body, uh, to, to display Jesus and our relationships to one another and how we love each other and sacrifice for each other. That would be a picture, a demonstration of what you've done for us in Christ. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so, uh, we're, we're, um, we're pausing a little bit on Exodus 33. Uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to spend some time today talking through kind of what we mean when we say that God is sovereign. Different people have a different view of this throughout the church, and, and sometimes it can be a little problematic. So I want to I look specifically at Exodus 33, uh, chapter, well, verse 17 through, through 23, that, that last part there. Let's read through it, and then we'll discuss some more. Verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will, and will proclaim my name, will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for, no, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. We talked uh, last week a little bit about this, and just by way of review, what three things did he show Moses here? What three things did he promise to show Moses? Morning. His goodness, his hand, and his back. His goodness, his hand, and his back. What, what is he proclaiming? His goodness is, is one. Yes, those are, the, those are the theophanies we talk about, the anthropomorphistic use of language, his, his back, his hand, his face. Those are the things that are obviously got a spirit. He doesn't have hands like men, but that's the language that he's using. What are the things that he's proclaiming to goodness, Moses? Goodness, mercy. Goodness, his name. And then the expression of that, what's wrapped up in the name is, I will have, I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. Um, when we use the word sovereignty, it's a big sounding word. What, what are some things that come to mind to you when we say sovereignty? Fight a war over this, by the way. What, what do we mean... Sovereignty of our king. Of our king. <laughs> Which we have never had. Ownership and authority. Ownership and authority. Okay. 
And what does that entail? The right. The right to control, the right to determine how things uh, are, are done. Um, and the power and the ability to actually do it. Yes, the right and the power. Uh, that, certainly when we think of sovereignty, we think of God's power. God is able to do all his holy will, that some of the old guys said in the, in the old confessions. Uh, what is sovereignty? He's able to do all his holy will. Uh, Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen says, Nothing is too hard for you. Ephesians 3.20, he is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. Um, and when you start from Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created, that's not hard to link to. God's very powerful, right? He can do anything he wants to do that's consistent with his nature, his will. That, that's not a big leap, yes? If he makes it, he owns it. We understand that. Um, what else would sovereignty include? What do you think? Are we talking specifically here or from a worldly definition? Well, just, just what does the word, what, what images, what, what definitions are brought up by the word? You're right, we don't understand this. Uh, Ty mentioned earlier because, you know, we relate it to our king, which we don't have. We don't understand this because our culture is built upon throw off authority, right? Be independent. Be your own man. I'm beholden to no one. That's our idea of freedom. We don't understand monarchy in, in the Western culture, especially in America. We, we fought a war to get rid of monarchy. Um, and I slowly guess creep back into it. For me, it, it, uh, leadership, like the, he's a leader... Okay. Um, and it's really like you don't have a say to whether or not you uh, respect and obey okay. the sovereign. Uh -huh. I mean, because that's what you're born into. Right. So it's like your duty to respect and obey. So you have, you have an obligation to obey the sovereign. Yeah. In terms of God, why is he good at that? Why is he... Because he's worthy of that obedience. He's worthy of that obedience. Um, what about in and of himself? What, what do we see when we think, talk in terms of sovereignty? What do we know about the nature of God in and of himself? He's all powerful. He's all powerful. He does all. He does everything. He does all he pleases, right? And he created everything we see. Okay. Did he need to? Purity and holiness. Ah, purity and holiness. What did he need to create? For his One, own glory. He did it for his own glory because he wanted to. Why doesn't he need to create? Why did he not need to? He's self-sufficient, right? Part of sovereignty uh, would also include that idea of self-sufficiency. He has no need to create. Um, do you remember Exodus 3? Way back, maybe you don't. There was a time when we talked about Exodus 3 long ago. Moses is in the desert... 40 years after running from Pharaoh because he killed a guy because he killed a, a Hebrew and he fled because Pharaoh's a little upset with him about that. Um, he's out in the desert 40 years and he sees an anomaly. What did he see? A burning bush. An enemy? Uh, yes. Try not to hurt yourself. Um, he, he uh, you all know what I meant by that. Okay, that's great. Yeah. 
Thank you for hearing. Um, so he sees a burning bush. What's unique about the bush? It's not consumed. So, and there's a, that tends to make a person pause. Well, he approached because it was. He approached it because it was not being consumed. Right, the bush was not being consumed by this fire. So. There's a song by Shailene called Self-Sufficiency. And it starts out with this very thick Scottish preacher accent kind of thing going, the fire that was in the bush. You know, kind of thing. <laughs> and, and we love that song. And what has, what has drawn us to that song is Nathaniel doing that voice. <laughs> and he riffs off of it. He says, the fire that was in the bush <laughs> did not consume the bush. The bush, like other fires, had consumed other bushes. And he just goes on and on about this thing. Why is that important that the fire did not consume the bush? Why is that important? It didn't need it for fuel. What's that? It was not normal. It's not normal. Didn't. It didn't need the bush for fuel. If I'm going to start a fire, I need wood or some kind of combustible thing. In this case, wood. But the fire is not consuming this bush. It has no need to consume. It's, it has its energy within itself. You know, that's what things with Scottish guy. So it, it, it has its own, it is its own energy source. That's a picture, isn't it? God has no need to burn the bush. He has no need to consume energy. He has no deficiency in and of himself. He's sovereign. He is self-sufficient. Um, yeah. Lonely God, let's go tend to him. And, and which, is, which is wrong. Which is nonsense. Because there was love within the, within the Trinity. Right. He does not need, did not eat, need any energy source. He, it had energy in itself. And from this picture, it's this picture of the fire not consuming the bush that God announces something, doesn't he? Who shall I say sent me? I am. I am that I am. I will be what I will be. Right? That, those are the translations we see of how God describes His covenant name that He gives to Moses, to His people, is, I don't need you. I don't need anything. I am reality itself. Uh, I, I am self-sufficient. Um, he's not constrained by some inner deficiency or unhappiness. If God were unhappy, if he were deficient in some way, he might have to do something he does not want to do in order to take up the slack and finally be happy. That's not God. This is a critical distinction between us and God, isn't it? I am deficient. I have need of people, of pleasures, of power of things that I'm grasping for, I'm trying to gain. Uh, we, we're born deficient and needy, right? We, we need knowledge. I'm born knowing nothing. 
I need to learn. I need to do something I don't like doing, like studying, to learn something. That's not God. In, in trying to get at God's uh, ultimate reality, ultimate existence last week, I used a word called personality. And, and, and it's that real estate law creeping in there, and I didn't realize it. So, and I heard, I heard Clint chuckling. I said, why is he laughing at me when I say this? Because he knows, like I remembered later, personal tea is not what I'm talking about. Personal tea is like personal property, right? I'm deficient, right? I use language that's not exact. I, use, uh, I, I don't have complete capacity to explain exactly like, perfectly like I want to all the time. I use goofy words sometimes. I did not mean it as personal property. I was trying to get at the essence, really, of personhood. Inconceivable. Inconceivable. I, I, I was... He, his, his God is absolute personness. We tend to think of God as this, this amorphous cloud. We watched all the Star Wars last night. I mean, all of them. And, and <laughs> we had a Star Wars binge. The old one. Yeah, well, well the, the ones that matter. Um, so, th- it's not a force. It's not an imperson- God is not an impersonal force. He is ultimate personality. <laughs> yes? In talking about him being sovereign and being ultimate personality, mm. um, I was in a luminary course one time, and it just, it just clicked with me when somebody, when the teacher said, okay, your name is Bob, you like the color purple, you like to eat, you know, turnips, whatever, and, and, and you're sitting there going, no, I don't. I have my own likes. Well, we, we do that to God, mm-hmm. and yet he is ultimate personality. He's a person, which means there are things he likes and doesn't like. The difference between him and us is everything he likes is perfectly right, mm-hmm. everything he doesn't like is, is wrong. But, there, but we don't think of God in that way as being person. And in fact, any, any claim that we have to personhood is derivative from God's personhood. We have because he, he's the fountain of that, right? Um, He's complete and overflowing with satisfaction from all eternity. We don't tend to God as to a needy child. He is sufficient in and of himself. We can't offer him anything that he does not that does not already come from him. Um, from him to him and through him is everything. Surely to God be the glory alone. I think is the way the line works. Um, well, in, in Romans eleven, uh, he says, "For who has known the mind of the Lord?" Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. David said this to God. My, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. What are we going to give to God that he doesn't already have? That he hadn't given us first. He's self-sufficient, completely, totally happy, content, (coughs) sufficient, in need of nothing. 
Paul reminds us, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If you then received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Whatever we have flows from a gift from the all-sufficient, happy God, even our ability to love Him, even our ability to, well, let's choose Him, flows from Him. It's a gift He gives. Another aspect of God's sovereignty kind of flows from this self-sufficiency idea. He's free. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have favor on whom I will give favor. He's free. He wants to show Moses who he is. I am that I am. This is how that looks. I'm free. And I'm free to treat someone however I want to treat them. I am free. He does whatever he pleases. He's unhindered by anything in creation. There is no authority or external restraint on God that anyone or anything would dictate to him what he should do. Psalm 115.3 is a favorite around here. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Whatever he pleases. Let that sink in. Whatever he pleases. It's a good thing he's good. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good thing he's unchangeable. Um, you remember Nebuchadnezzar the, when he, when he uh, was prideful and, um, oh, look at this Babylon that I have built for myself. God struck him. Uh, he went a little daft in the head and started eating grass and growing long nails and the whole thing. Well, when he re returned to himself and repented for that, incidentally, this is from a pagan king testifying to who God is. Let that sit for a little bit. Um, he says of God, he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What are you doing? He's going to say that to God. What are you doing? And have anything, uh, I don't know, uh, to do about it. He does whatever he pleases. And he shows that, again, in Exodus 33, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Paul uses that statement. I want to read through this. Again, I, I have no delusions of grandeur here. I am not going to plumb the depths of Romans 9 with you. I just want to read through this. Just read through it and see how Paul uses that language. God is free. And he spent... Eight chapters talking about the beauty of the gospel and the certainty of God's plan and redeeming a people for himself. And then he gets to a thorny issue. I'm, verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. We talked about how that's the same heart that Moses had. Blot me out of the book for, the, for their sake. Same kind of idea. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. 
And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. And we've been marching through that in the first five, as we're going through the first five books. We see all of this, don't we? All of this stuff given to the Israelites. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. As if all this other stuff weren't enough, Jesus comes from the Israelites. Who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. There's your assignment of deity of Christ right there. <coughs> Just an apologetic note you want to maybe tuck away. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why would he say that? Why would he go to that, that point? It's not as if the word of God has failed. Because Gentiles are being saved. Well? Because there's a remnant that was saved through... What's Paul running from? Every town he goes to, he first goes to a synagogue, and what happens? He gets kicked out. Why? Because he's talking about Jesus, pointing to the Messiah, and what do these Jews do? They reject the promised one. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why would he say that? What are we going to do? These are the promised people. And yet they're rejecting Christ. Has God's promise failed? They're not responding like they should. If you were to look at all the externals that they've been given, they should be responding this way. He's got a problem. And he resolves it this way. First of all, how does he resolve it? He resolves it by looking at God's word and pulling out of the Old Testament what God has always said. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means... That it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Are counted as offspring. Children of the promise. What's the promise? For this is what the promise said. About this time, next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, Though they were not yet born and had nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of, oh, here's a scary word, election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? God's not fair. Is there injustice in God? By no means, for he says to Moses, what? I'll have mercy on those whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on those whom I have compassion. He's not bound. He's free to treat his creatures, how he determines in his good pleasure to treat them. He's not bound. So then, it depends. What depends? What depends? It depends. The pronouns 
kill me. What, what, let's define them. Salvation depends. It depends not on human will or exertion. I got in a long conversation with a guy one time. It's very, let's just say, um, animated. Uh, where he, we were talking about some of these things, and I was cage stage. I shouldn't have been talking about it because it was just kind of one of those things. I should have been locked up in a cage until I calmed down, and then we talk about the sovereignty of God. Um, but we got in this long discussion about it, 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 was, it, it ultimately culminated in him pointing his finger at my face, which is always a good approach with me, and, and just saying to me, I chose God. I chose God. Again and again and again. Hey, Lord. <laughs> I'm just glad you're here. No, we're not doing, we're not doing the... We usually do waves. I looked for back interest. There's not one. No, this is, a, this is an intentional setup. We like this. This is good. We have fun. Um, he, he's pointing at me saying, I chose God. I chose God. Just red in the face. Um, well, I won't go into it anymore. But that's the idea. It's unjust if I don't choose God. Is that the idea? It's unjust. What is, uh, whose side was he on here? If we're looking at Paul's questions, Paul, the challenges to Paul's doctrine, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God. How is he characterized? Who's capricious? Who just, who, who just likes to bump people because it's fun? On God who has mercy. And he's free to do so. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What happened to Pharaoh? There's a hole in the bottom of the sea, right? He, he was destroyed. And it says, God says to him, we talked about this when we were going through the plagues, God raised him up for this purpose that he might display his sovereignty, his power, his might, his worth, in a man he raised up to destroy. Will what? Uh, well, let's see. He says, so then, in verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills. And here's a part that makes people get a twitch in the right eye. And he hardens whomever he wills. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will bestow favor on whom I bestow favor. God is free. He's bound by no one, no external thing. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Why would he... Why would he still punish if he's going to raise up Pharaoh to destroy him? Why would he, why would, how is that fair? Fair, fair, fair. Why is that fair? And here's an answer that I think just, just settles it. We just land on this and it's just, okay, well now I understand. But who are you, old man, to answer back to God? That's satisfying. Yes? Uh, Daddy, why do I have to do the dishes? Because... That's the answer he gives. 
Who are you to talk back to God? Have we not just discussed how free he is and how all-powerful is, how he's sovereign, and you're going to wag your finger at God? I chose you. I chose. Is that what we're going to do? Who are you to talk back to God? Uh, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Obama, what are you doing? I'll show you. I'll vote you out. That's not sovereignty. God is sovereign. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he has called. And here's the kicker. Not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And let's stop there. He's free. He's free. That whole chapter, well, the whole chapter. Yes, the whole chapter is to, is to display, Paul is displaying, is, is teasing out, is, is, is putting on a record, God is free. Um, now, smart guys have spent years studying this passage, and, and I, I just want to kind of bring out those ideas to you for your further study. And to point to this, God's freedom is not bound by our freedom. He's not constrained by any free will of the creature. Uh, in terms of C.S. Lewis, he's not a tame lion. He's free. We don't control him. We can't, we can't force him to do anything. Uh, Matthew Henry says it this way. I, I love this. The greatest and best man in the world must say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But God says, absolutely, and it is more than any creature, man or angel, can say, I am that I am. That's a great statement. He's free. What moved God to create the world? He wanted to. He didn't need to. He wanted to. He did not create because he was in need of fellowship. Why? Incidentally, why would he not need fellowship? Because Trinity... Because he is triune in his own nature. In himself, he is community. Sufficient, content, happy community. He does not demonstrate in creating that he is in need of a creation. And by creating, it doesn't change him at all. He's still the same he was in eternity past. The creation hasn't changed that. Something did have creation, didn't it? Something that was different. God's nature doesn't change. But something happened. It brings about a new relationship with God, doesn't it? Creation. The one who is boundless, 
and binds the one who's boundless binds himself <coughs> to his creatures freely isn't that what Moses is recording for us in chapter 33 what's the context in which all of this is taking place is it accurate to say that angels aren't made in his image I think so so when the angels rebelled against them he just cast them to hell but when he his creation that was made in his own image rebelled against them he freely decided to show them mercy instead of just based upon what he had done in creation right. he freely chooses to show mercy to some right. or not yes. yeah, or not for the freedom what is the context of Exodus 33 what's going on here the Lord passed by. We talked about what that meant. What's going on here? God who is free and boundless does something. What's all this in context of? He's revealing himself. He's proving himself. Okay. But he didn't have to. He chose to do it He did. He's revealing him. He's condescending. We use that word. Condescending from on high to man to reveal himself this way uh, to Moses, why? Was it passing by? We talked about that last week. Making a covenant. God who is free and boundless binds himself to a people he has chosen. Isn't that what Moses keeps saying? Don't, don't leave us. These are the people you chose. You've covenanted yourself, covenanted yourself with us. Don't don't turn back now. Um, let's go back to the Exodus 3 picture. The fire, though it was sufficient, was still in the midst of the bush. Right? It, the fire could have appeared apart from the bush. It could have appeared you know, beside the bush. But God used the image of a fire in the midst of a bush, yet not needing the bush, but tied to the bush to reveal himself to Moses. I am that I am. And I am with you. I'm with my people. I'm with those I have freely chosen. God, though free and boundless, has bound himself to his people. At the unburning bush, God is committing himself to redeem his people. That's what Exodus 3 is all about. I'm here to redeem them. I'm here to save them. How does he bind himself to his people? He does it redemptively. Author of Hebrews in chapter 6 says this, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What are the two unchangeable things, incidentally? Does he say? In himself. His unchangeable character, and he said so. 
He made an oath. He doesn't lie. And because of his nature and because of what he has spoken, freely chosen by what he has committed, he's bound to his people. And he's capable of, of doing it. And he's capable of doing it. We can run with assurance to the refuge of his promise, right? That's what he's saying. Why did he do it? Why did he do it? Okay. Could it? Because he wanted to. Um, Moses uh, it talks about some of this later in Deuteronomy when he, he he's rehashing it before he he goes off uh, to the mountain uh, to die and. Um, in Deuteronomy he, 7, he says in commenting on this stuff to the people of Israel, it's not because you are the greatest in number God chose you. It's not because you're so awesomely awesome that God chose you. Um, the Lord set his love on you because he loves you. The Lord set His love on you because He loves you. Where's the logic there? I, if I were going to chart that out, I'd just draw a circle. There's no logic there. Why is that significant? Because it's in His nature. He, he is the first cause. So his, if love is in His nature, then the first cause is love. Okay. He loves you because He is love. Okay. He's gonna. He's he's gonna love. First John. Yeah, you're right. If I say to Tammy, "I love you because you are so beautiful," what's wrong with that? Because I'm getting older every day. Not a reassuring thing for a woman. If if she gets older, which she doesn't look any older to me, but I know it'll happen eventually. Maybe my eyes will get dim and I can't see her. Uh, what? What? Uh, what? It's conditional. What if I have a car wreck? If she's in a car wreck. Yeah. What, what if something happens? I love you because you're so dang smart. She uses a word like personality. We're, we're hosed, right? He's got doubt. Um, uh, if if uh, if I say to her, um, you know, I, I, I love you because of the wisdom that you have in, in operating. Well, the first boneheaded move she does, there's doubt. Well, maybe he won't love me now, right? We understand the language of the heart, right? We understand the language of love is, I love you because I love you. I love you because I love you. We understand that, yes? That's the language that God is using. I love you because I have set my affection, my purpose. I have bound myself to my people. Um, I'm free. I'm free to set my heart on those whom, upon whom I will have mercy and upon those whom I will have compassion. What's the significance of that. It won't change. It doesn't change. 
in his freedom, he is eternally bound to his people. The word of God has not failed. He's always been free to bind himself to those upon whom he has set his covenant love. And he does not change. Here's the significance in Exodus 33 and for us this morning. He doesn't change even when we do. Isn't that what Moses is wrestling through with God right now? They've blown it. They have no right to your presence. They have no right to have you in their midst. God says, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The $10 word here is election. But really, it's just talking about the freedom of God to set his love on his people. And in and, and saying that, I'm not saying, and, and I don't think anybody would think I'm saying this, I just want to make it clear, that God doesn't love his creation generally. Right? He's kind to all. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. But there's a special love that he has for his people. And he's free to do that. Does that make sense? Some people get beclimped over this. They get all tight. I think that it's very clear if you read through Romans 9, that's what's going on. There are depths of it. There are things we can argue about. This is just about Israel. It's just about, I think clearly it's... All the people are called in Christ. He includes Gentiles at the end there, but, but some people argue over that. Um, he is kind of all, but he has a special love set on his people. Uh, here's the thing. I've, I've really been just bursting to, to tell you all week. Look back again at Exodus 3. Who was speaking from the bush? The bush. Who was speaking from it? In, in verses... Two through four, what does it say? How does it start? Behold. Behold. <laughs> Carlos, I missed you. Behold, yes. <laughs> what does he say? Two, verse, verses two through four. Who is speaking? The angel of the Lord, and then go on. <coughs> what, who else is speaking? The angel of the Lord is in the midst of the bush. God. God, the Lord, it says. There are, uh, there's no distinction there, right? I mean, except that there's a distinction. The distinction is the angel of the Lord and the Lord. That's the distinction. And yet they speak with the same voice. They speak with the same purpose. They speak from the same bush. They. Here's the point I'm trying to make. I, and I've argued this before and I'll argue it again. I think that the theophanies that we see, that the, 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 the visions of God, the, the, the presence of God that we see in fire and cloud, in the bush, in the rock, all these things that we see, I believe, and, and Paul says this, are, is the pre-incarnate Christ. The second, God reveals himself in the person of the second person of the Trinity. It, it's Christ in the bush. Right? It's Christ that puts him in the cleft of the rock and walks by. says, you can't see my face. That's my view on it. I, I, think, I think I stand on good authority to say that. The rock is Christ. This is Christ doing... Where is this taking place, by the way? Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb. Okay. Um, well, just, just to kind of draw it out a little bit. The one who appears to Moses is the Lord and is the angel of the Lord. Jesus... Hints to this in John 8, 
verse 57, the Jews were arguing with him again, and, and, and Jesus says, you know, Abraham uh, longed to see my day and rejoiced, you know. And, and the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Taking on that covenant name of God on himself, and, and they were very perplexed by that. They didn't really know what to make of that. They, they were, what do you mean, I am? What, what do they do in response to that? They took up stones. What does that mean? They understood very clearly what he meant because they immediately tried to stone him for blasphemy. No trial, no nothing. It was clear, I am. He tells them, that the very one who identified himself to Moses on the mountain as the I am is the one standing before them at that moment. Um, where are they? He said the mountain. Where, Moses had built this tent, right? Because God was not going to be in their midst. He said, oh, I can't be with you. I'll kill you. You're stiff-necked cows. What, what, uh, where were they? In chapter 33. Yes. Let's flip back over 30 chapters. Chapter 33 in Exodus, where were they at the, at the point all this was taking uh, place? They're at the base of the mountain. They're at the base of the mountain. Where in relationship to the people? Moses. Yeah, Moses. Outside outside the camp. They were outside the camp. So they're outside the camp when God reveals how he relates, how he is binding himself to his people. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Outside the camp. What happens outside the camp? We talked a little bit about some of the sacrifices. What happens outside the camp? Where do they take the, the refuse of the sin offering? It's outside the camp. Where do they send the goat in the Day of the Atonement? The one that's going to bear the, the scapegoat. Where does it go? They release it where? To go where? Outside the camp. So the idea of outside the camp... Why are they being punished with God being not in their midst but outside the camp? Because of their sin. They're outside the camp. <laughs> in a sense, yes. But, but where Moses is meeting with God is a picture of because of your sin, God's out here. And yet being out here, he reveals himself, I'm free and I've bound myself to these people. And I love this. Hebrews 13, 12. So Jesus also suffered. Inside the city? With the community? Outside the camp. Outside the gate. Where the stuff is burned that's refuse. Where the remainder of the sin offering goes to be burned in shame and reproach. He suffers outside the camp. The same place, we're talking about location, not geographically, but, but the, the idea is there that, that Christ goes in the same type of place that God reveals, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, Christ goes and reveals what that looks like. This is how I show my mercy. Because really, how can God, who's holy, blameless, undefiled, be bound to a people 
very blameworthy, very unholy, very defiled. You've ruined it, he said. How could he be bound to them? What possible basis could he have? It's the cross. Because he himself would go outside the camp and bear their reproach. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. How does he display that he will have mercy on whom he will? How does he display that he's bound to those whom he loves? The place that I deserve to be cast, the place that you deserve to be cast, he took that reproach, that shame, on himself. He took it freely because he wanted to. Wasn't bound to, didn't have to. He chose to because he wanted to. What's our response to that? The author of Hebrews goes on. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Why? Because you are, you become what you worship. He's laid down himself freely when he didn't have to and loved us because he loved us. And now we, in turn, reflect that by loving those around us, his people, loving what he loves. And what the Hebrew the author of Hebrews is talking about here is these guys are being persecuted by going to prison and giving somebody some food that they know is a believer, supporting them. They come out, I'm identified with the believers. So they, in turn, are subject to reproach, right? That's what he's talking about, loving what God loves. Go outside the camp, bear the reproach. Um, as our culture gets more crazy, remember this. He's free. He's loved us, loves us, has not abandoned us, and now calls us to join him and bear the reproach that he bared for us. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city to come. He's free. He's bound himself to us. We should love those whom he loves. Outside the camp. Any thoughts, any comments, any outrage to be expressed? Yeah? Thinking about on Wednesday night, we were talking about uh, that verse. If anyone says that he loves God but hates his brother, he is a liar. The truth is not in him. That verse is easy to read mm-hmm. and easy to understand what it means. Very hard to do. Yep. And so is this. So is this concept. Is that the concept of God loves me is hard, is easy to read, mm-hmm. easy to understand, and hard to believe sometimes. The fact that God is sovereign. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, very clearly articulated in Romans 9 and in you know, Ephesians 1, 2, all those places. But it's hard, to, it's hard to obey. It's hard to understand. It's hard to 
Make yours. Yeah. And I think it's the key, make it yours. Make it yours. It, there's an emotional component to this that we don't, that I think those of us who are more uh, sovereign grace oriented in our, in our theology tend to gloss over. We forget that we were outraged when we first heard that God is sovereign. And we tend to, why don't you get this? What are you, stupid? I mean, that, we don't want to ever do that. Ever do that. That. I understand sovereign grace. What are you, stupid? That just does not fit, right? God gives understanding. God gives understanding. So, so, but even more than do we have the theology correct, are we living it out? And living it out involves doing the hard stuff. It's hard to love whom he loves. You read Numbers... I'm, I'm amazed at this. Those people were insane. And then I look at the mirror. My own heart struggles with things. My own uh, deficiencies call me away from finding my, 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 that, that he is sufficient for my deficiencies. Right? Is he enough? I have, I have to keep going back to that. Again and again and again. I can't rely just on Tammy or the kids for my happiness. They'll fail me, and I them, and have. We have to keep going back to the one who loves us because he loves us. Right. Any, any other statement? Any, yeah. I was just going to say, I hate this, but just, it struck me that freedom that he gives us in Christ, because he talks about you will be free indeed. Mm. Well, when we were apart from him, we thought we were free, but we were only free to do sin. Mm -hmm. We were only free to do things against God. And when he has given us his son, given us his spirit, we sometimes I think we get stuck in, oh, I'm such a sinner, and we just kind of go, well, I guess that's where I am. Mm -hmm. instead of realizing that he has made us free to choose righteousness. He's right. made us free by the power of the Spirit to actually do right things mm -hmm. and to actually, not to say that we can live a righteous, perfect life, mm -hmm. but he has given us freedom through Christ to do what's right and to love people who we couldn't love before. By being bound to us. We are united to him, and we have freedom to reflect him. Um, which we didn't, which we we didn't before, before, being distinct from, yeah. yeah. Good. Anything else? All right, uh, let's pray. Oh, the depth of the riches of the glory of God, the knowledge of God, of the love of God. Why did you do it? So that you might show the immeasurable riches of your grace and kindness toward your people in Christ. But there's no simpler reason than that, because you wanted to. And yet, I still grasp for my own rights. And I still fight the desire to 
fill my deficiencies with things other than you. Again and again and again, Father, give us your grace that we may behold you as sufficient not only for yourself but in your grace for us as well. I pray that we love those whom you love even though they may be unlovely to us at the moment. Help us to go outside the camp to bear reproach to reflect Christ in your freedom and in your binding yourself to your people. We thank you for this great gift. In Christ's name, amen.